And now hear God's holy word from Matthew chapter 1 as we begin our new study in the gospel according to Matthew. Hear God's word. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham begot Isaac, Isaac begot Jacob, and Jacob begot Judah and his brothers. Judah begot Perez and Zerah by Tamar. Perez begot Hezron, and Hezron begot Ram. Ram begot Aminadab, Aminadab begot Nashon, and Nashon begot Salmon. Salmon begot Boaz by Rahab. Boaz begot Obed by Ruth. Obed begot Jesse, and Jesse begot David the king. Thus far the reading of God's word, let's give thanks together. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. We thank you for how you've preserved every word pure and, and efficacious and sufficient for us. We ask you to guide us into this study, not only this morning as we open the book of Matthew, but as we go chapter by chapter, that you would guide us by your Holy Spirit, deliver us from every error, deliver us from every distraction, and may we focus and be guided into truth. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Can you name all of your great-grandparents? I'm doing the math correctly, you have eight great-grandparents. Can you name all of them? Or how about even one of your great-great-grandparents, first and last name, or even middle name? How far can you go back in your family naming even one ancestor for each generation going back? How far back can you go? Maybe a few of you can, but it seems that most people in the West and most people in the United States have lost track of their family trees. If you ask people about their heritage, very few can answer with any great certainty where they came from and when. At best, we have this vague sense of only one or two of our nationalities. We have genealogical amnesia. One of the reasons for this is that we've had such great social disruptions over the last 200 years. Families moving from Europe and Africa and Asia to the Western Hemisphere and then coming to the Americas, uh, you've, you've lost contact after a couple of generations. You've lost contact with the people on the other side of the ocean and then people spread out across these continents and the people moving west lose touch with the people Back east. It doesn't take very many generations to just lose your connections. And so one casualty of massive migration is the family tree, the family story, the family heritage disappears. And when you have one group of people living in the same area for generations, marrying within one small territory, you develop a much more cohesive set of traditions and ancestry. But a majority of us have lost a sense of our genealogy and where we come from. That was not the case for the people of the nation of Israel in the Old Testament up to the time of Jesus. Even in spite of the great disruption of the Babylonian captivity and the uh, conquering of the northern tribes and the dispersion, they could, at the time of Jesus, still trace their lineage back to Abraham. And because of the biblical record, if you could get to Abraham, then you can connect yourself, of course. If you know your tribe, you can connect yourself through the, through the patriarchs and then all the way back to Adam. And when you read the Bible cover to cover, you often come to lists of names like the ones in the book of Numbers and like the, the names in the Chronicles. You have several chapters of begats, begats, begats. You might call them the begatitudes when you get to them. We're tempted to just skip the begatitudes. We're tempted to maybe barely skim them. See, we don't want to miss anything, but it feels at times as if they are tedious for us to read but they were vital for God's people. They had a need to know who they were as the people of the covenant, which meant that they needed to know how they were connected to Abraham and to the promises that God made to Abraham. And so knowing their family lineage and knowing their story and knowing their family was part of that. There was also an element of faithfulness to keep the fifth commandment in that. Honoring father and mother means not only knowing their names, it means not only obeying mom and dad, it also means preserving the heritage and the memory and the stories of grandma and grandpa and great-great-grandfather and, and on all the way back, 
honoring my father and mothers from many generations ago, recalling their faith and their heritage, honoring their reputation and honoring their name by not only being faithful to the covenant, but by in my own day, in my own generations, being a faithful father to the generations which follow me and the more to come. So this was all critically important for Israel. They kept track of their family history. And when Jesus comes, this information is available so that the gospel writers check up and they include this history in their accounts of the life of Jesus. Both Matthew and Luke provide detailed family histories of Jesus. The gospels introduce Jesus to Israel and to the world. But as you introduce Jesus, one question that immediately comes to mind, especially for the ancient man is, who is this? Who are we talking about? Where did he come from? So Matthew begins his gospel by answering that question. Who is he? And so as we begin our study of Matthew's gospel, that's our starting point as well. Typically, when a Bible teacher or a pastor begins a new book of the Bible, and we want to go verse by verse, we go to chapter by chapter, usually we spend a lot of time up front on authorship, on date, on themes. A lot of that's very helpful. I'm only going to spend a few minutes because I really want to just jump into the book, but I will spend just a few minutes. I think this is helpful. Who is the author of the gospel uh, according to Matthew. Well, it's Matthew the tax collector. It's Matthew the apostle. We read about him in the ninth chapter of Matthew. So if you're following along, I'm going to skip around a little bit in Matthew's gospel and in Genesis in just a few minutes. So in Matthew chapter 9, verse 9, Jesus passed on from there. He saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax office, and he said to him, follow me. So he arose and followed him. And the very next chapter, we see Matthew the tax collector numbered with the 12 apostles. There in chapter 10, Matthew, the tax collector, is an apostle. So this is, by all accounts, this is the author of this gospel, the apostle. So as a tax collector, he was an intelligent man. He could write and read. He could not only write and read Aramaic, but Greek, and he could think in Greek. He could speak in Greek, which was incredibly valuable. He's a very erudite man. He knows how to write, obviously. He's an educated man, and he's the one who gives us this account of the life of Jesus. Mark, in his gospel, refers to Matthew as Levi. Matthew has two names. Like many people in the Bible have more than one name. Matthew has another name when we get to Mark's gospel. He's called Levi. Um, which likely indicates that he was a descendant of the priestly tribe of Levi. And one of the themes of this gospel is Christ's priesthood, his authority on matters of the law. And so there is a, a priest, Levi, one of the priestly tribe, who presents the higher priest to us as this authority on his father's law. That's who the author is. When was this written? The traditional position, going back to Augustine, and probably even before, because I believe this is actual uh, truth here, the traditional position is the reliable position. The, the traditional position is that Matthew is the first gospel, it is the oldest gospel, and that the gospels are arranged in the canon of scripture in the order in which they were written. So Matthew is written first, and then a few years later we get Mark, and then we get Luke, and then we get John in chronological order. Over the last 150 years or so, there's been modern textual criticism that theorizes that Mark is the oldest gospel because it is the shortest. It's the shortest, and the other gospels, Matthew and Luke, embellish on Mark's and, and, and maybe soften some of Mark's words or make them more believable. Of course, this is liberal critical theory. They even theorize that there's a proto-gospel that's even laying behind Mark called Q. If you've done any New Testament studies, you've probably read about Q, which is a manuscript that nobody's ever seen and nobody's ever read. We've never laid hands on it, but it exists because obviously these things were written so much later and we can't really rely on them. So there's some document way in the annals of history, back in the dark reaches of history called Q that was the original Mark copied some of that, and then Matthew and Luke copied Mark. Uh, that is not sustained uh, for, many, for many reasons, one of which is um, that it, Matthew's gospel must have been written before AD 70. The, the temple is still standing as Matthew 
writes about it. And it's, it's very possible and believable. And, and, I, and I actually trust that the Gospel of Matthew was probably written with just, within just a few years of the ascension. It comes very, very early. And then, and then it looks like Mark's Gospel is actually, not that Matthew embellished on Mark, but that Mark takes Matthew's Gospel and then makes it more compact in some places, explains some things for a wider audience in other places, still under the supervision of the Holy Spirit. He's not just writing things that come to, come to his mind. But that, uh, but that um, Matthew comes first, then Mark, then, then Luke. Remember how Jesus said, right, right before the ascension, Jesus said, you will be witnesses to me in Jerusalem, in Judea and Samaria, and to the uttermost part of the earth. And it looks like Matthew, Mark, and Luke are written as the church expands to these various zones. Matthew, written very early, is written to primarily a Jewish audience that lives and operates in Jerusalem. While the church is still centering on Jerusalem, Matthew's gospel is very Jewish in its scope, written while the church is still working in in Jerusalem. Then Mark comes along and he writes his gospel as the church is expanding out to Judea and Samaria. We need a more compact, shorter summary of the things that Matthew wrote. You've got Matthew's gospel. If you want to access it, you can get it. But here's a shorter gospel. Oh, also, we need to explain some things as we go out to a broader um, culture. And then I'm going to explain that in just a minute. And then Luke, of course, as we go out as we go out to the world. Uh, Luke was a missionary companion of Paul. Luke writes to a Greek man, and so Luke is the gospel to the nations. And what about John? Well, John's doing something completely different from all the rest of those. Um, everybody recognizes, New, New Testament scholars recognize Matthew, Mark, and Luke are dealing with the same material. John, wonderfully, gloriously, is writing this theological treatise on the word made flesh, on the second person of the Trinity, the perfect God-man ruling over all creation. That is, that is John's gospel, uh, and he's doing, doing something different from Matthew, Mark, and Luke. But, but here's an example of what I'm talking about that Matthew wrote to a primarily early Jewish audience in chapter 15 of Matthew's gospel. Uh, if you can join me there, if you'd like to, you can see this for yourself. In Matthew chapter 15, we have this dispute from the scribes and Pharisees who criticize Jesus because his disciples don't wash their hands before they eat bread. Chapter 15. Then the scribes and Pharisees who were from Jerusalem came to Jesus saying, why do your disciples transgress the tradition of the elders? for they do not wash their hands when they eat bread. And he answered and said to them, why do you also transgress the commandment of God because of your tradition? Now, Matthew doesn't stop to explain what's going on with the Pharisees and why they have a problem with Jesus. Matthew doesn't stop to explain this tradition that the Pharisees introduced of these special washings and cleansings because Matthew is writing to a Jewish uh, audience in Jerusalem very early on. Everybody understands the problem of the Pharisees. They know what's going on here with this conflict. They also know the law of Moses, and they know what the Pharisees are up to. They don't need any explanation. But when you get to Mark, Mark chapter 7, and Mark tells the exact same account, Mark draws aside and says, look, you need to understand what's going on here. Mar Mark chapter 7, same account, then the Pharisees and some of the scribes came together to him, having come from Jerusalem. Now, when they saw some of his disciples eat bread with defiled, that is with unwashed hands, he's explaining what defiled means with unwashed hands, they found fault. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands in a special way, holding the tradition of the elders. When they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And there are many other things which they have received and hold, like the washing of cups, pitchers, copper vessels, and couches. Then the Pharisees and scribes asked him, why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat bread with unwashed hands? Do you see what Mark is doing? He's got a broader audience and he's trying to explain, this is the tradition that the Pharisees had a problem with. This is the tradition that Jesus was deliberately stepping around, showing that tradition to be empty and devoid and that's not God's law. Well, uh, so the ordering of the gospels then lines up with the expanding audience of the church, the expanding audience of the gospel as the message goes out 
to the world. The Bible is not this haphazard collection of random manuscripts and scribblings of madmen that somebody somewhere in history, you know, some monk in the 17th century kind of pulled all this together and tried to come up with a Bible. No, absolutely not. There is an order that points back to the Holy Spirit as the source of all of this. The, the, the Holy Spirit superintended the collection of this material, the writing and the reproduction and the preservation of this perfect book. The Holy Spirit is the editor in chief. You can see this also in the way that the books of the the, the Gospels, and oftentimes the books of the Bible, will link together as, as links in a chain. The uh, minor prophets all do this. Uh, one of the minor prophets will end on a question or a problem that the next minor prophet will pick up and develop, and then he'll end on a question or an issue, and the next prophet will pick that up. And that goes right on through the Gospels. So the last book of the Old Testament is Malachi, what is the last verse of the Old Testament? How does Malachi end? What note does the Old Testament end on? Well, the very last verse of the last book of the Old Bible, uh, the Old Testament, is Malachi 4.6. Um, I'll start in verse five. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of Yahweh. And he will turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the hearts of the children to the fathers, lest I come and strike the earth with a curse. So Malachi ends with the promise that the hearts of the fathers will be turned to their children and the hearts of the children will be turned to the fathers that God will work through the generations to bring about the the salvation from the curse, the deliverance from the, the curse. That's how Malachi ends. That's how the Old Testament ends. How does Matthew open? How, how do we start the Gospel of Matthew? With a list of fathers and their sons and the generations who produce the son of the promise, who overcomes the curse. How does Matthew end? You see, there's a little link there. Malachi and Matthew link up. Well, let's read through Matthew, and then we get to the end of Matthew, and the very last thing that the Lord Jesus says in Matthew is go. We have the Great Commission at the end of Matthew's gospel in Matthew 28. And the Lord Jesus says, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Great, go. That's the imperative. Okay, which way do we go? What is the way? How do we go? How are we supposed to conduct ourselves? How do we fulfill this message? Well, we, this mission, how do we fulfill this mission and message? Flip the page. What is the way? You get to Mark's gospel. Behold, I will send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way before you. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. And from there, in Mark's gospel, the Lord Jesus is always going. He's going, 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 straightway, immediately. Uh, Mark loves those words because Jesus is always on the move in his gospel. So you see what's happening. Matthew ends with go, and then Mark tells us how to go, which way to go. We see Jesus as the example of the way to go. The, the end of Mark, if we keep reading through Mark, we get to the end of Mark, and whether you like the longer ending or the shorter ending, it's all the same. Mark kind of ends on a cliffhanger. There's this, uh, this sense of uneasiness at the end of Mark's gospel. The women are anxious and confused and trembling. The men are unbelieving and hard of heart at the end of Mark's gospel. Um, that's how Mark ends. How does Luke open? Luke opens with the comfort and joy of women, Elizabeth and Mary with the sons, they're, they're the mighty sons that they have been given to raise. And then Zechariah's hardness of heart dissolves into praise and thanksgiving. So, so Mark ends with uh, anxious and trembling women. It opens with rejoicing women who start in anxiety. Mary starts in anxiety, but that turns into rejoicing. It ends with uh, men hard of heart and slow to believe. It opens, Luke opens with Zechariah, hard of heart and slow to believe. And yet his hardness of heart turns into praise. And that's how Luke's gospel opens. How does Luke's gospel end? 
Luke's gospel ends with Jesus teaching the apostles that he is the fulfillment of the word of God, that he shows them how all the law and prophets and psalms spoke of him, that Jesus is the word incarnate. Okay, how does John open? This is a gimme. How does John open? In the beginning was the word, and the word was God. The word was with God. The light shines in the darkness. The word became flesh. Luke ends with Jesus saying, I'm the word. John opens with saying, Jesus is the word. Do you see how these all link up? And they only fit together this way if Matthew comes first. And again, this is just evidence of the Holy Spirit as the composer, the Holy Spirit as the editor, as the one who puts all of these things together. Well, now in that, in the background, let's begin reading this gospel. And the Holy Spirit wants us, before we even get into Matthew, before we get to the Sermon on the Mount, before we get to the Lord's Prayer, before we get to the miracles, the Holy Spirit wants us to read a genealogy. I'm not gonna skip it. We're gonna read the whole thing because every word of this book is pure and every word of this book is important and it's written to be read aloud. And so we, won't, we don't wanna skip a single thing. So as I read through these first 17 verses of Matthew, listen closely, don't allow your mind to drift, but listen for names that mean something to you and think about the arrangement and how this is all put together. Verse one, Matthew chapter one. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham begot Isaac, Isaac begot Jacob, and Jacob begot Judah and his brothers. Judah begot Perez and Zerah by Tamar. Perez begot Hezron, and Hezron begot Ram. Ram begot Aminadab. Aminadab begot Naashon, and Naashon begot Salmon. Salmon begot Boaz by Rahab. Boaz begot Obed by Ruth. Obed begot Jesse, and Jesse begot David the king. David the king begot Solomon by her who had been the wife of Uriah. Solomon begot Rehoboam. Rehoboam begot Abijah, and Abijah begot Asa. Asa begot Jehoshaphat. Jehoshaphat begot Joram, and Joram begot Uzziah. Uzziah begot Jotham. Jotham begot Ahaz, and Ahaz begot Hezekiah. Hezekiah begot Manasseh. Manasseh begot Ammon, and Ammon begot Josiah. Josiah begot Jeconiah and his brothers about the time they were carried away to Babylon. And after they were brought to Babylon, Jeconiah begot Shealtiel, and Shealtiel begot Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel begot Abiud, Abiud begot Eliakim, and Eliakim begot Azor. Azor begot Zadok, Zadok begot Achim, and Agam begot Eliad. Eliad begot Eleazar, Eleazar begot Mathan, and Mathan begot Jacob. And Jacob begot Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom was born Jesus, who is called Christ. So all the generations from Abraham to David are 14 generations. From David until the captivity in Babylon are 14 generations. And from the captivity in Babylon until the Christ are 14 generations. So the literal opening, the the literal translation of the opening of Matthew's gospel is the book of the Genesis of Jesus Christ, the book of the generations, the book of the genealogy, it's all the same word. Matthew is consciously writing a new book of Genesis, a, a, a new creation story with a new Adam and a new beginning. And Matthew follows the general outline of the early history of Israel as he writes the story of Jesus as he presents the events of Jesus' life. The early chapters of Genesis give us the story of creation, and then we get all these lists of names. We get lists of genealogies. Well, Matthew begins with a genealogy, with a list of names. And then Genesis goes on to tell us about miraculous, unexpected births, wonderful births, the birth of Isaac, uh, the birth of Jacob. Matthew tells us about a wonderful, unexpected, miraculous birth. And then, uh, then, then reading in Matthew, we have a dreamer named Joseph. Well, you read Matthew's gospel and you have a man named Joseph who has a, who has a dream. Um, then you read into Exodus and you read about a child-killing king. Well, Matthew presents Herod as the child-killing king. There's a nighttime escape from a tyrant in both Matthew and Exodus. Jesus and his, uh, Joseph and Mary and Jesus flee under cover of darkness to go to Egypt, just like Moses and Israel leave Egypt under cover of darkness. And then Moses and Israel cross the Red Sea and Jesus crosses through the waters of baptism to go out to be tempted in the wilderness, just as Israel went out to the wilderness. Jesus ascends a mountain to instruct his disciples in God's law. 
and how they can build a house that is founded and established on righteousness. Just as Moses ascends a mountain and he teaches his people, he teaches God's people his law, and then he tells them how to build a house, the tabernacle. So each beat, beat for beat, throughout this, these early chapters, Matthew is following the early history of Jesus. Jesus takes on the identity of Israel. He's reliving their history, except without sin. Jesus is reliving their history in a perfectly faithful way. Israel was Yahweh's son, but Jesus is the greater son who never rebels and never disobeys his father. Now, Matthew purposefully grounds the story of Jesus' life in Israel's history. And look how he does this. He starts with, he says, the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. So the first three names we get are Jesus, David, Abraham. We're moving backwards through history. Jesus, David, Abraham. And then we get Abraham and his generations, David and his generations. And then we wind back up at Jesus. So if you're keeping track, it's Jesus, David, Abraham, Abraham, David, Jesus. Ordinarily, when you see a book of generations, like the book of, book of the generations of Adam or the book of the generations of Noah, you start with the man. It begins with Adam. It begins with Noah. And then it lists all of his offspring. These are the people who came from Adam. These are the people who came from Noah. But in listing the generations of Jesus, now you see all of these people who came before Jesus? How does, this, how does this work? Well, yes, these are the people who uh, came before Jesus, but also these are the people who come from Jesus. These are the generations of Jesus. His name is first. This is the family of Jesus, just like the family of Adam or the family of Noah. These people came from Jesus and produce Jesus. He is the alpha and the omega. He is the beginning and the end. Let me put this another way. Is Jesus Abraham's son? Well, yes. Is Jesus David's son? Absolutely. Is David Jesus' son? Well, yes. Is Abraham Jesus' son? Yes to that too. Both are true, which is why we get this, this arrangement. Jesus, David, Abraham. Abraham, David, Jesus. Uh, and he gives us this list showing these generations leading us back to the Lord Jesus. And it shows us the Lord has been working through all these generations to bring us the Savior and then working through his people to bring about this great deliverance to save us. Matthew gathers Israel's history here into three groups of 14 generations. Abraham to David is one group. David to the Babylonian captivity is a second group. And then Babylon to Jesus is the third group. Three groups of 14 generations uh, Three fourteens is six sevens. Jesus then is the seventh seven. He's the Sabbath of Sabbaths. He's the Jubilee Sabbath. And so Jesus is the one who's coming to release us from our debts. He's going to free us from our burdens. In fact, Matthew spends a lot of time in his gospel showing us how Jesus delivered the people from the burdens of the Pharisees. There's a lot of uh, very harsh language for the Pharisees and their behavior in the book that Matthew writes. Jesus is our jubilee from this, from this burden. He lifts the burdens of our sins. He delivers us from our fears. He delivers us from our slavery to Satan and the grave and death. But in order to get this super Sabbath arrangement, in order to get this to work, to get up to Jesus as the seventh seven, he has to leave out some names. Well, Matthew's not pulling a fast one here. He knows that if you want an entire comprehensive list of the kings, you can go back to 1st and 2nd Kings. You can go back to 1st and 2nd Chronicles, and he knows you can check him up on that. He knows you can find that out. You have access to that. But he has a purpose in who he takes out and who he leaves in. There's a purpose in the names that he includes and excludes. Notably, he leaves out three generations of kings associated with Ahab. Now, we've just spent eight weeks studying Elijah and King Ahab, and so I can't let this pass up as, a, as kind of a footnote to that whole study. When you look at uh, verse 8, you see that Joram begot Uzziah. Uh, there were generations between Joram and Uzziah. And Moses will do this too. Moses will do this in Genesis when he says someone begot someone 
Sometimes begot can be a father, it can be a grandfather, it can be a great-grandfather. And in this case, Joram was Uzziah's great-great-grandfather. What happened to those in between? Where did they go? Why aren't they counted? Why doesn't Matthew list their names? Well, you'll remember two or three weeks ago, Joram was the son of Jehoshaphat who married Athaliah, who is the sweet, precious daughter of Ahab and Jezebel. Good girl. Sweet, sweet girl. I mean, she'll, she'll take the cigarette out of her mouth but before she uh, cusses you out. I mean, super sweet girl. Uh, no, she was a monster. When you read uh, the book of Kings, she's not great uh, at all. So Athaliah is married into this line, and then the next three generations are all associated with the house of Ahab, and none of them are listed by Matthew. So Matthew deliberately disassociates this genealogy from the house of Ahab. Um, Elijah told Ahab that this was going to happen. Elijah told Ahab that God was going to cut off his posterity. In the second commandment, God says, he cuts off those who hate him to the third and fourth generation. Well, here we have it. There are three generations of descendants of Ahab that are left out of the genealogy of Jesus. Ahab could have had the blessing of inclusion into the Davidic line, notably through his daughter. That would have been a huge blessing, but he is deliberately excluded. The name of Ahab is erased as far as Matthew is concerned. Now, that doesn't mean that everybody else on the list is a Boy Scout. Everybody else on the list is perfect. Manasseh is on here, and he was terrible too. He was awful. But Ahab's descendants are glaring omissions. In fact, if you're reading this as a Jew, you get to that and say, wait a minute, Joram begot Uzziah, we skipped some names. Why don't we skip those names? Oh, yes, Ahab. And you remember that whole story, and you remember, oh, I see why Matthew left him out. But there are some other names that are intentionally included. There are five women who are included in this list, and it's not the ones you might think it would be. It's not Sarah, it's not Rebecca, it's not Rachel, that they were faithful, and we honor them and their memory. We might expect them to be there, but they're not. Matthew includes women that we might not expect to see in this list, like Tamar. Matthew names Tamar, who was the Canaanite daughter-in-law of Judah. Judah, the patriarch, has a son who marries Tamar, a Canaanite woman. His son dies, leaving Tamar without a husband. It was Judah's job to provide her a husband from his house. There's a huge debacle in providing her another husband. So Judah just sends her away. He just, he just, he just deals with her. He just you know, pushes her out. She was part of the covenant people. She grew up as a Canaanite, but now she's included in the covenant people. But then Judah just dismisses her without, without cause, without any procedure, uh, without any remedy. He excommunicates her without process. And so what does Tamar do? She dresses like a prostitute. She seduces Judah. She bears him twins. And then he finds out what's going on. It's all in an effort. Tamar is trying to get included back into the covenant people of God. She's working her way, biting and fighting, clawing back into the covenant people of God. You're not going to excommunicate me that way. You're not going to just leave me on the side of the road. I want to be part of the people of God. And so she goes to these lengths to not be cast out of the covenant. And this is all to Judah's shame. This is Judah's problem. It's his fault. He should have never treated her that way. And it's on him that he did. Uh, Tamar is listed in uh, this genealogy in verse 3. Now, Matthew didn't have to name Tamar. He could have just said, well, Judah begot Perez. You kind of remember what happened there. And then um, keep on going. But Matthew deliberately includes Tamar. Not only that, Matthew names Rahab. Rahab was the Canaanite prostitute in Jericho. Remember, she hid the spies when Joshua was sending men to spy out the city of Jericho. And Rahab's whole house was spared from destruction. Rahab boldly demonstrated her faith in deceiving the city guards who were looking for the spies. She sent them out another way. She, she uh, sided with the covenant people against her own city, against her own people, and because of her faithfulness, she was incorporated into the family of Israel. She married a man named Salmon, 
who then, you know, eventually bears Boaz, which is a name that we all know. Boaz married Ruth, who's the third woman that Matthew includes. Ruth was a Moabitess. She was from Moab. You know her story. She married a Hebrew man who died, and she begged her mother-in-law, Naomi, not to discard her from God's covenant people, uh, but to stay with her. Ruth goes into the land, and she works her way into the attention and into the care of Boaz. Okay, are you noticing a pattern so far from Tamar to Rahab to Ruth? These are all women who are outsiders, who are in situations that might preclude them from being included as covenant people who shrewdly and cleverly and tenaciously put men in situations to claim them and to bring them in. Now, Jesus is going to run into a woman like this in Matthew chapter 15. Jesus will meet a Canaanite woman who begs for the blessings of the covenant. Do not send me away. Please heal my daughter. My daughter has a demon. And she verbally wrestles with Jesus a little bit until he praises her faith and he answers her prayer. She's in the same position. This Canaanite woman is in the same position as Tamar, as Rahab, as Ruth. Now, of course, Jesus knew he was going to heal her daughter. Jesus is not being mean to this woman. What Jesus enjoys and what he loved is that fire and that tenacity and that desire to fight and claw and bite and grip and get whatever it takes to get into the covenant. That's how I'm going to pursue the Lord Jesus. That's how I'm going to pursue his blessing. Do not send me away unless you bless me. So all these women are examples of the faith of the bride of Christ, of the church. This is how we're to pursue Jesus, to be tenacious in our love for him, not to be indifferent, not to be casual or cavalier, but to do whatever it takes. I want nothing more than to be in the covenant people, within union with Christ, in a relationship with him. And these are all women who model that. There's one other woman in this list who isn't explicitly named, verse 6, David begot Solomon by her who had been the wife of Uriah. He doesn't, we know who he's talking about. We know he's talking about Bathsheba. I'm not sure why he leaves her name out other than to perhaps get Uriah's name in and remind us that she was the wife of Uriah and remind us of David's sin. David is the preeminent king in this list. He gets mentioned first and often. And so we remember, oh yeah, David did that, didn't he? Oh yeah, boy, that was terrible. And we long for a king who won't take his neighbor's wife. We long for the king who won't kill his neighbor. We long for the king who won't steal his neighbor's vineyard. Uh, that's the king we want, um, who won't treat God's people that way. And we long for the righteous king. Uh, Bathsheba is not a Gentile. The other women are. Bathsheba is not a Gentile. Bathsheba is the granddaughter of one of David's mighty men. Ahithophel is her grandfather. Uh, but she's married to a Gentile. She's married to Uriah the Hittite. And so uh, she becomes, even though this is a terrible series of events, she becomes the faithful mother of Solomon. Each woman is brought into the covenant under extraordinary circumstances, and each one of them in their day might have been viewed with suspicion. Their behavior might have been perceived as scandalous and immoral, though given the perspective of history, we see each one of them in the end, at, at the end of their stories, we see them as virtuous and faithful, which sets us up for the last woman on the list, Mary, whose pregnancy at first glance was questionable, scandalous, but with the, with the perspective of time and with the truth and the story of the gospel and with the illumination of the Holy Spirit, we see, no, Mary is not scandalous. Mary is not immoral. She is virtuous and faithful, and she is as righteous as Tamar and Rahab and Ruth and Bathsheba. So with listing these names, Matthew is setting us up for Mary. Matthew is giving us a heads up for what's coming with Mary. And by including these Gentile names in the family tree of Jesus, it's apparent that what Matthew is after with this list, he's not trying to show Jesus is a pure blood Jew, not a drop of Gentile blood anywhere. That's not what he is after. 
But what he's showing is that his family, the family of Jesus, has always incorporated Gentiles throughout his generations. And Israel, whenever Israel's been faithful, has incorporated the nations, has incorporated Gentiles into the people of God. The gospel going out to the nations, that's not a plan B. That's not a backup in case Israel failed to receive her king. The mission and the, and the story of the gospel going out to the nations has always been the plan from the beginning. This has been the mission since Abraham, and all nations are blessed in Abraham. One small puzzle very, very quickly. Um, some of you may already know this, and you may be wait, wondering, is he going to bring this up? Is he going to say this? Some of you may be just unaware or haven't studied it. Either way, one puzzle in this list um, is that there are 14 names in the first grouping. There are 14 names in the second grouping, but only 13 names in the third list. And, and Matthew says there are 14 generations from Abraham to David, 14 generations from David to Babylon, 14 generations from Babylon to Jesus, except for that third list only has 13 names, not 14. And if you add up all the numbers, you only get 41 names when you might expect to get 42. 14 plus 14 plus 14 is 42, and yet we only have 41 names. Okay, what gives? What's going on with that? Well, I don't have a satisfactory answer. It might be that there's some linguistic thing that we're missing in the way that the generations are figured because Matthew doesn't say there were 14 names. He says there were 14 generations. And so there may be a way of counting the generations that, that account for that, or maybe the 14th generation at the end of the list uh, is the church and the apostles, the people who are uh, generated from Jesus. The, we are the descendants of Jesus. We are the last name on the list. That's a, that's a possibility. That's one explanation. It's something to study. I don't have a completely satisfactory answer. I know what's not an answer. I know one that you can cross off the list. One that you can cross off the list is, well, Matthew couldn't count. I mean, he was just a dumb ancient man, and he didn't have a calculator or a spreadsheet to keep track of all this, and he just left somebody out, or he didn't know how to count because he ran out of fingers and toes. That's not an answer. That's not an answer to this at all. So you can take that one off the list. Maybe in 500 years, we'll figure this out, and it'll, a little light bulb will go off, and everything will click together, but I don't have it for you today, and I, I hope you're okay with that. But it's something to study, something to pay attention to. It's something I've at least got to bring up and mention. So in opening the gospel this way, Matthew has told for us the entire story of Israel up to this point, and he's put Jesus at the end. He's put Jesus at the end of the ledger. He's put Jesus into this history, but also as the point of all of this history. And so Matthew, in giving us this genealogy, demonstrates that he is writing real history. He is a chronicler of history. He's not writing a legend or a myth or a fairy tale, he also provides the credentials of Jesus in the claim of Jesus to the throne of Israel. There hasn't been a Davidic king on the throne for many years in Israel, but God promised David. God said to David, one of his offspring would be the eternal king, and that he would establish his house and his throne and his kingdom forever. That was a promise to, to David. And Matthew is going to show us that yeah, Jesus is that king. Jesus is the one. And here is his genealogy. Here is the record. Here's his family tree. Go look it up and see that he's the one. In the very next chapter, wise men from the east are going to come and say, we're looking for the king of the Jews. And of course, they find Jesus. In Matthew chapter 27, Pilate asks Jesus directly, are you the king of the Jews? And he replies, I am. It is as you say. And as Jesus hung on the cross, a sign was put over his head and said, this is Jesus, the king of the Jews. Well, all these claims to the kingship of Jesus, his rights to the crown would prompt questions. Well, is he really? Is he really a son of David? Is he really the king of the Jews? Well, let's check the line of succession. We can find from David to this day that he is the king and we can confirm it. He is the son of David. I want to leave you with just one reflection though. <clears throat> as we consider this expansive history from Abraham to David to Jesus. We see how slowly and carefully God works out his purposes in time to bring the deliverance that he has promised. Uh, according to um, Usher's chronology, whatever you think of Usher, he at least represents an effort to um, understand a, 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 a biblical timeline. He's going to the scriptures for his timeline of the Bible and his timeline of events. Usher says that King David died about a thousand years before Jesus. 
So from the time that God made his promises to David until the time that he fulfilled them in Jesus is about a thousand years. Usher said that Abraham left Ur of the Chaldees about 1922 BC. And so from Abraham until the fulfillment of the promise in Jesus is about 2,000 years. That God makes promises to Abraham and to David and then works those out for a couple thousand years. From promise to fulfillment is thousands of years. Generations and generations and generations of people being born, growing up, getting married, having babies, growing old and dying, and another generation being born and growing up and getting married and having babies and growing old and dying. Generation after generation after generation, God's goodness and his mercies being worked out incrementally, cumulatively, progressively through the families of the earth, small and great, rich and poor, weak and strong, faithful and struggling. He works through these generations, through these families to bring his purposes to bear and to bring his promises to fulfillment. It takes a long time. Now, let me ask you this quick. Keep your mind on that and just kind of push that to the side for just a second. Keep it in front of you and ask this question. How long did it take God to create the cosmos? How long did it take him to create the sun, moon, and stars? Jupiter, Mars, Polaris, Sirius, Rigel, the Pleiades. How long did it take God to create hills and valleys and rivers and Mount Everest and Death Valley and the Smoky Mountains and the Mariana Trench? How long did it take him to populate this world with fish and birds and insects and land animals? How long did all of that take? I'll tell you what Psalm 33 says. We'll go there for our answer. By the word of Yahweh, the heavens were made and all the host of them by the breath of his mouth. He gathers the water of the sea together as a heap. He lays up the deep in storehouses. Let all the earth fear Yahweh. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him for he spoke and it was done. He commanded and it stood fast. How long did it take him to create all this? Well, he spoke it into being. He spoke it and it was done. So consider this. The God who makes the wonders and the glories of the heavens and earth makes them out of nothing by his command, by just declaring them to be, and they're, they're there. He's also pleased to work out the redemption of mankind over millennia, over centuries and centuries and generations and generations. The first creation is born by decree in an instant. But the, but the new creation, the work of redemption, is born through the work of generations of faithfulness, year after year after year. Stars, rocks, whales, it just speaks those into existence. But the work that God is doing on man and in man and through man takes millennia. Does that give you perspective for what God is doing in you and with you and in us and why it takes so long sometimes? that the triune God is raising up humanity as a faithful bride for his son, and it pleases him to take his time. And he hasn't even really gotten started yet. The generations that are listed on this page, these are just the preface. This is just the prelude. Did God set this up over, over many centuries, many hundreds of years to give us the promised king and then just zap us out of the world a few hundred years later? All this buildup, here's the king, it's gone. Or, as the scriptures repeatedly tell us, does God intend to show his mercy to a thousand generations? Deuteronomy 7, Psalm 105, 1 Chronicles 16 says that the Lord will show his mercy and his covenant to a thousand generations. Now, even if we're taking a thousand literally, and I'm inclined to think that it's more than a thousand, because whenever God uses the word like thousand, you mean, he means a lot. He means more than we can number. But let's just be sticklers, just to say a thousand. God is only gonna show his mercy to a thousand generations. Okay, what does that mean? Well, we've only had 300 generations since Adam. I know that sounds stunning, that sounds amazing, but if, you, if 20 years is a generation, again, that's a very conservative number, but if 20 years is a generation, then we've only had 300 generations since the creation of the world. Do the math real quick. A thousand minus 300 is what? 700 generations that God has yet to show the mercy of his covenant to. 700 more generations is how many years? 
14,000. And again, that's an extremely conservative estimate. But what that means is we have not even gotten started on the story that God is writing through history. God sets before us this immense view of history that he is answering his promises over generations and millennia. And he shows us the scope of history. And yet in the midst of that, in our tiny second of time, we're impatient when God doesn't answer our prayers right away when things are not improving as quickly as we want them to, when things aren't changing, when there's chronic issues and problems and defects and effects of the fall that we're praying against and fighting against. We're seeking to be obedient, but growth and good outcomes take forever. Good things seem to come in fits and starts. Oftentimes we see painfully slow progress, if we see any progress at all. We get frustrated and we're tempted to lose hope. But the perspective of history that God gives us shows us that the triune God is playing the long game. That he always keeps his word, but he's pleased to keep his word over many, many, many generations. It pleases him to work this way. So what's our job? Well, our job is to wait. It's to wait on the Lord, to be patient. Don't be anxious, don't worry, wait. Because the way that God works is to accomplish things in ways that build patience into his people. Moses waited, Abraham waited, Noah waited, David waited, Joseph waited, Daniel waited, Ezra and Nehemiah waited. You look at every story, they wait and they wait and they wait and God is pleased to build us up in a way that we learn to be patient, why? Because he is patient, that's who he is. He is long-suffering and he is making us like him. His patience gives room for repentance. As long as you're breathing, as long as you have life, you still have an opportunity to turn, to repent, to call on his name, to submit to him, to ask for his blessing. His patience gives room for repentance. His patience creates more people to enjoy him forever. God could have given one of Adam's daughters the son of the promise. One of Adam's daughters could have had a virgin birth and bring up the son of the promise who dies and redeems the world, all, you know, 28 of them. And the the book of Genesis would be about 10 pages long, and that would be it. But God is patient through all those generations. Why? to create more people who will enjoy him forever. And he's not done. He's barely started. He's barely started. His patience allows the world and the cosmos to be populated, the heavens to be populated with people to enjoy him forever. His patience is the overflow of his stable sovereignty. Nothing is ever out of control for him, so he never gets impatient. He never gets worried. He never gets frantic. We are impatient because we're out of control, We're not in control of things. We feel out of control. And so we sinfully grasp ahead of time for things like Abraham grasped for for Hagar, trying to accelerate the process. Like Adam grasped for the fruit, accelerating that process. In our sin and in our impatience, we grasp ahead of time for things that are not ours when we feel out of control. But we are trained and we are disciplined by waiting. And so we must learn to rest and to trust. Psalm 27, wait on the Lord. What are you anxious over? What are you praying for? What is not happening as quickly as you want it to? Hear Psalm 27, wait on the Lord. Be of good courage and he shall strengthen your heart. Waiting is strengthening. Wait, I say, on the Lord. This perspective gives us the long view. You don't have to fix the world today. Be faithful with what you have right now in front of you, the time you have, with a view to the hundreds of generations and the thousands of years through which God still intends to work out his purposes and fulfill his promises. Let's give thanks. Father in heaven, we praise you for your goodness to us. We thank you for all the ways you have shown mercy to all these generations, and we rejoice in the mercy that you have shown us in our day. So strengthen us, we pray, and give us your Holy Spirit. Fill us so that we might be obedient and faithful in our generation. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.